Good morning and welcome to West Seattle Christian Church. Pastor Worth here. If you're new with us, welcome. If you're not, welcome back. We are in the midst of our epic uh, story series uh, where we're talking about um, what is going on in the narrative uh, arch of, of Scripture and how does it all kind of fit together and what is God trying to reveal about himself to us. Last week we were talking about this thing called the sin cycle, and we were concentrating on some passages in Judges chapters 1 through 3, and I illustrated for you what that cycle looks like, and I put up this diagram. We're going to put that up again today, um, but I wanted to put the emphasis on something else. When you look at that diagram, I, didn't, I did not title it uh, the sin cycle. I titled it the redemption cycle, and I talked a little bit about how I was taught about that uh, back in Bible college 20 years ago. And um, this, this week, I want to dive into that a little bit more. And I want to put the emphasis on this as a cycle of God's redemption of his people, which includes you and me. And I really, when, when you think about it, I want you to just pause for a moment. Many of you have a lot of different experiences in faith. You maybe grew up in church or maybe you didn't. Uh, and a lot of us feel just this heavy weight, uh, stress or anxiety, especially if you've been away from church for a while, uh, about church and God and even other Christians because you're like, you're fully aware of, of everything you've done wrong in your life. Everyone's fully aware of that. And you hear it from a bunch of different places all the time. And you hear it from that voice in your head about who you wanna be as compared to who you think you really are as evidenced by your actions. But when you think about it and just pause for a moment, what is it that's totally shocking and amazing about this cycle? We looked at what it was in Judges, how the, how the people, they, they do bad in the eyes of the Lord and God raises up a, a prophet to bring them back on the right track and then they do good for a little while and then they forget and then it just repeats. Is what's really shocking, is it the part where we screw up? Is, is that the part that just amazes and stuns us? Or is what's really stunning about this cycle is that God forgives us over and 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 over? What is it that really jumps off the page at us? Is it that we're sinners? No. Not to me anymore. What, what, what jumps off the page is this unbelievably reckless love of God. We sing this worship song where the lyrics say, no shadow, there's no shadow he wouldn't light up. There's no mountain he wouldn't climb up coming after me. No wall he wouldn't kick down. Lie he wouldn't tear down coming after me. This reckless love of God. That's the shocking news. That's the utterly amazing news of the gospel that you can find all throughout this entire epic story, both the Old and the New Testaments. This is the cycle that's so important for us to see and that somehow many of us were handed something else where we lose sight of this and all we do is get weighed down by all the junk in our life. And so it's really important to see this cycle through the appropriate lens. God has endless patience with you and with me. God's patience for you as you try to walk the path, it is fathomless. It is bottomless. It never runs out. It's endless. 
no matter how many times the cycle turns around and around. And I know what you're, I know what you're thinking when I say it's endless, that his patience never runs out, that it's fathomless or bottomless. And we're going to get there because some of you are like, really? No matter how many times, though, I really believe that God's patience is endless when you look at this narrative of what God's up to in the scriptures. At what point, here's the question to ask, at what point in the story does God give up on and forsake his people? It doesn't happen. Is he like, okay, at the 3,987th time, you know, that's enough and I'm ready to drop this relationship with you and I need somebody else to do this with me, to partner with me. No, that's not who God is and that's not how it works. And this is going to go on all the way through the Old Testament, all the way through the prophets. For example, from Isaiah 5, there's this passage, you can flip there on your own and, and read it, but there's this passage about the vineyard where God speaks to his people as if they were a vineyard. And he says, look, I came here looking for good fruit. And I only, when I got here, all I find is Beit Ushim. I found bad grapes. <laughs> I came looking for good fruit, but I only found bad grapes. And the end of that passage in Isaiah 5 says this. It says, the vineyard of the Almighty is the nation of Israel. And the people of Judah are the vines he delighted in. And he, basically he says, I looked for Zedekah and all I found was Zedekah. I looked for righteousness and all I found was unrighteousness. Woe to you who add house to house and field to field. Let's think about that for a minute. I mean, because from your perspective, adding house to house and field to field, that sounds like it's going great. To me, that sounds like you know, like I have a house and I get to add another house. I had a field and I get to add another field. That means things are going really well. My business is growing or something like that. Things are looking up in the world. But instead, he says, uh, that's not good. It sounds like things are expanding, like I'm taking more territory, like I own more stuff, right? But where, let's put the, put the diagram back up for a minute about this redemption cycle. Where do we, where do they find themselves in that cycle in this passage of Isaiah 5? If you put it up, they're right at 12 o'clock. At 12 o'clock, everything's going good. What happens after that though? What happens after 12 o'clock? Isaiah says, you need a word of warning right now because you're headed towards 2.30 p.m. in the afternoon for a siesta. A siesta of complacency and laziness and neglect and forgetting what you're about. You're headed towards a place. You're headed towards a cliff where all of a sudden this house to this house and that field to that field, the business is coming at the, your business is actually succeeding, but it's at the expense of other people is what Isaiah is saying. You're crushing and oppressing other people, which is a narrative that we are dealing with massively right now. And we need to deal with it. And that's, Isaiah says, the prophet says, and that's not why God promised you this promised land. He didn't offer you the promised land on the backs of other people. He did not. And he, so he says, I want to invite you to be a part of blessing others. I want, to be, I want you to be my people who bless others. So this cycle continues all the way through the scriptures. Now, I know when I talked about the bottomless patience of God, I'm sure that there were some of you who were like, wait a minute, I know enough of my Bible, or I've heard enough about the Bible, or someone has always pointed out the bad stuff in the Bible, you know, the quote unquote bad stuff, all this destruction, a lot, a lot of angry God in there. And if you go back to the beginning of the series, I said, no, God's not angry. And if you haven't heard that bit yet, I encourage you to go back and listen to all of those and watch them. But 
you know, a lot of people think there's a lot of punishment in the Old Testament scriptures, especially. And again, I think our perceptive, our perception deceives us, our perspective. When you orient yourself around the story in your identification is as, as a sinner, because a lot of us, a lot of us, were, you know, whether you were raised in church or whether you just heard church was like this, you're identified as a sinner. And that changes and taints everything you see in the scriptures. One of the things that this has taught me, and I know this doesn't, that's taught me a different way to look at this, and I know this doesn't work for, for everyone, but one of the ways I've learned to look at this through a different lens is through the lens of, of parenthood. When it comes to parenting, I think there's an important distinction between punishment and discipline. It's taken me a little while to, to get there to figure that out. Obviously, I think all parents figure this out over time, hopefully. Um, you know, we didn't have our kids. We, this summer is 20 years of marriage for me and my wife. And um, we've, I've been a dad for 10 and a half years now. My son will be 11 this next October. And uh, sometimes what I figured out though is that sometimes discipline involves punishment, but discipline, if you're a parent at all operating under the call of what God wants us to be as parents, then we're not trying to punish our kids. We're trying to discipline our kids. And there's an important distinction between uh, punishment and discipline. Punishment is something that you do out of anger. It's reactionary. When I'm having a good day as a dad, I am disciplining my children. It's not angry. It's not reactionary because I love them, because I want what's best for them, because I'm calling out of them their best potential. So, for example, sometimes I'll tell my daughter, hey, look, I'm going to tell you once, and then I'm going to tell you twice, and then I've warned you three times, and now, because you've gotten to this point, there is no more screen time. Can I get an amen, parents? There's no more screen time. And then you think the darn, the whole world has ended because there's no more screen time. There's this, there's this punishment that's a part of a larger plan to try and teach her and shape her and mold her into the awesome young woman that I know God has designed her to be. And that is my calling as a parent. That's my calling as a father. So here's the deal. If I was going to sum up this cycle and relate it to my six-year-old daughter, I would, I would just say this. God's epic story, what the story he's telling, God's epic story tells us about God's epic love. So how come when we're stuck in this redemption cycle, we always assume it's because God is angry with us? I would submit it's because we're kind of like immature six-year-olds in our spiritual life, to be honest with you, because that's what my kids feel like when I punish them by taking the screens away. Dad's angry at me, took away my screen. I illustrate all that for you to tell you this. I think we have to take the conventional wisdom that we have as human beings about the things that we know are true in life that... You need to do this, and if you don't do it, and you don't do it, and you don't do it, then there's this consequence, there's this punishment. And is it really a punishment to take away my kid's screen? Well, you, you would, by her reaction, you would think so. We have to take all that conventional wisdom about all the things that are true in life and apply that same common sense about who God is. And I realize that some of you didn't have good parents. Some of you did not have good parents. Some of you had terrible parents. And so it's hard to make this metaphor of parenting work. It, it, all metaphors break down at some point. But try to imagine what a good, loving parent would look like. 
if you find yourself in a redemption cycle somewhere towards the bottom of that graphic, is it because God's angry with you or is it because God is lovingly calling you and shaping you and forming you into the person that he wants you to be? He wants you to come back to what he wants you to be. And you can take this further because sometimes I'm disciplining my kids uh, because they've done something wrong. And other times, we all understand that part, right? They've done something wrong and I need to discipline them. Other times, uh, sometimes as a parent, I'm actually disciplining my kids because they've done something right. And they have even more to give. And I'm like, you gotta push through this. For example, clear off the table after dinner. Clear off the table after lunch. Now, now that you've put it over on the counter and you walked away, no, I want you to go back and I want you to scrape off the plate into the compost. And then you put it in the sink. No, I don't want you to leave it in the sink. I want you to rinse it off now and I want you to put it in the dishwasher. So there's more and more. There's more steps taking you further towards maturity. I want you to turn out into an adult that knows how to do these things. And so there's lawn mowing and there's making your own breakfast. Good, you made your own breakfast, okay? Well, your sister just got up, now I want you to make her, her breakfast. Like that's the way it works. Um, anybody know what I'm talking about? <laughs> so like, here's my son. I can see he has this gift of leadership in him. I want nothing more than to over the course of the next eight, 10 years, for as long as he'll allow me, I wanna call out of him this gift of leadership and help it mature in him. And sometimes, even as a 10 year old right now, he steps into leadership roles and I'm like, oh, it gives me goosebumps. I'm like, whoa, he is leading uh, his friends in this way. He is acting a certain way on the playground and I heard something that happened and then he acted this way and he was a leader. And sometimes he steps into something and then he stops short and he stops short because he's uncomfortable. And if I can see that as a dad, what do I do? What do I do then? I lead him into it. Maybe I prod, maybe I, I prod him a little bit or push him a little bit more because I know that if I do that, he can, come the, he can become the kind of person that I know God wants him to be. And I do that, why? Because I wanna be mean? No, I do that because I love my son, but from his perspective, how does it feel if you're the son getting propelled and pushed forward into something that's uncomfortable for you, that you a place where you didn't wanna go, something you didn't wanna get into? And yet, as you get older and grow up, and all of those situations are familiar to us as adults, even as high schoolers and college students, and even as junior hires, and you look back and you go, wait a minute, look back in that to that, that point in our life and there's mentors and teachers and parents who have done that and what do you wanna do? For me, I, I wanna thank them. You, th you say thank you to your parents for calling, you, calling out in you whatever it was that challenged you to become the person that you were intended to become. So here's the question. Why don't we ever think of that situation as the way God is for the reason he does the, these things to us? We don't put him in that same category. How come when stuff goes wrong, we always assume it's because God's angry with me or the universe is mad at me, mad at me or against me or that we have done something wrong? How can we do that? What if it's that we finally stepped into something that God sees within us, the potential to become something more. And he's like, yes, 
Go further with that. I'm going to prod you. I'm going to push you. Step into that. Lean into that more fully, more deeply. But instead, how, how can we always run? How can we always run from this? I know it's hard. I get that. How can, how can, we, how can we always assume the anger of God? I, I know I do this. Um, this, whole, this whole series is about God's epic story. And God's epic story tells us about God's epic love so that we can learn from the history of our ancestors and understand one main thing, one main thing. God loves us. God's wisdom and love, they far exceed that of his people. He not only knows what's best for us, he wants what's best for us. Out of his infinite wisdom and love, God gave us rules to follow, and I know that's like, a, you said the rule, you said the R word. You can't say rules anymore. It feels like you can't say that anymore, especially in Seattle, Pacific Northwest. There's rules, what? But he set forth these rules to guide us, to protect us, and mainly to keep us close to his heart. In the same way, just like with, with our kids, when our kids break the rules we set for them, the rules that we've given them for their benefit, when they break those rules, we discipline them because it's this process of, of them breaking the rules and then us disciplining them out of love. It makes them into the people that they're designed to be. It's frustrating for me to listen to us as Christians over my, my uh, time as a pastor for, for many years. And when we look back on the Old Testament and we see it as this gigantic story of the failure of God's people, um, and then we're like, thank goodness Jesus shows up. Really? Really? No. Rather, uh, the redemption cycle graphic that I've shown you, I mean, that illustrates it in a different way. This is the story of God's people. And he's never, ever giving up on us. And he's always loving us. As If you read Galatians, it says, at just the right time, God sent Jesus into the world to keep allowing us to grow and to mature into the people that he wants us to become. This is who God is. So I want to illustrate how this is crossing the boundary line between the Old Testament and the New Testament, how it is part of God's epic story all the way through how we've been in Judges. I'm going to flip over to the book of Hebrews, um, chapter 12. And I just want to read this short section of scripture to you, starting in verse 5. It says, And you have completely for." And have you completely forgotten the word of encouragement that addresses you as a father addresses his son? It says, My son, do not make light of the Lord's discipline, and do not lose heart when he rebukes you, because the Lord disciplines the one he loves, and he chastens everyone he accepts as his son. It goes on to say, Endure hardship as discipline. And I, I gotta admit, that's I'm saying this to you, but it's really hard for me to endure hardship as discipline. God is treating you as his children. For what children are not disciplined by their father? If you're not disciplined and everyone undergoes discipline, then you are not legitimate, not true sons and daughters at all. Moreover, we have all had human fathers who disciplined us and we respected them for it. How much more should we submit to the father of spirits and live? They disciplined us for a little while as they thought, best, but God disciplines us for our good in order that we may share in his holiness. No discipline seems pleasant at the time, but painful. 
Later on, however, it produces a harvest of righteousness and peace for those who have been trained by it. All right, so there you go. The whole parenting analogy wasn't just my idea. The writer of Hebrews says, if you're not being disciplined, the only conclusion you can come to is that you're not truly a child of God. Because if you're truly a child of God, and if God is at all a good father, he would discipline his kids because that's what good fathers do. Now, I realize, obviously, I've already said this before, I realize there are major exceptions to this rule of this metaphor of fathers, especially because many of us have, you know, there's tons of us in this day and age that have not had good fathers. But how much more, it says, how much more should we submit to the Father of spirits and live in order that we might share in his holiness? No discipline seems good at the time, but painful is what it says. Yep. Pretty much always been that the case in my life. But later on, the writer says it produces a harvest of righteousness and peace for those who have been trained by it. So God's, I want to go back to that point I've reiterated a couple times. God's epic story tells us about God's epic love. That is the great big truth behind this epic story of God. There is nothing, there is nothing that we can go through that can separate us from the reckless love of God and no matter what we're going through somehow and I don't get it I don't understand it completely and I probably never will he uses it to work out imp- incredibly good things in our lives because he loves us he loves all of us he loves our enemies he loves everyone on this planet everyone and he wants us to help with spreading that love So I want to leave you with a few implications for all of this. The first one is this. God's epic story tells us about God's epic love. And I want you, I know I've repeated that, and some people are like, yeah, God. I want you to realize the significance of that statement. His story is telling about his epic love. Everything in the scriptures points towards God's love. Just dwell on that for a minute. The second, second implication is this. God is asking us to partner with him so that others can see and experience and know God's love. This is why it matters. This is why it matters. If you don't believe in this love, if you've never experienced it, what in the world are you going to give to anybody else? If you're convinced that God is angry with you, what are you going to pass on to others? What are you going to pass on to the rest of the world? You're definitely not going to pass on the gospel because the gospel is about God's love and how, how recklessly he is running after each and every human being on this planet to redeem them. Implication number three, when we fail, when I fail, when you fail, God is patient and he is gracious. When you rebel, when you sin, God is patient and gracious with his love and his forgiveness. He guides us to become better and more adjusted in our behavior. And sometimes, this involves discipline, and sometimes it involves consequences. So I just want you to be aware of that. Implication number four, when we become the, the, the antithesis to God's story, when we become the anti-story, when we don't show the world that God loves them, and instead we actually oppress them and take advantage of them, and we crush them, and we hurt them, when we become that anti-story, God disciplines us. He will discipline us. Just like when one of my kids is beating the tar out of one of the other of my kids, what do I do? I put an end to it. 
because I love both my kids. And I think God does that too. When we take advantage of other people, you can expect God to discipline you. The last implication is this, and I said this at the very beginning, there is a big distinction between punishment on the one hand and discipline on the other. Punishment is angry and reactionary, and it's what the pagan gods do when you read all of the other stories of the deities of the ancient world. Discipline, on the other hand, is what the God of the Bible does. One comes out of anger, and the other comes out of love. And I pray that you don't get those mixed up. God's epic story tells about God's epic love. You don't believe it? Well, we're going to take a minute. I want you to take a minute to get some bread and some juice or some wine because we're going to partake in what we call communion. And we're going to remember Jesus in a minute during this time that we call communion. If you don't believe this story of God's epic love, take a look at the, about what communion is and those elements that are in your hand. Especially if you're, if you're already a Christian, you're doubting his love for you. Take a look at those elements. There is nothing that God wouldn't do to show you and me how much he loves us and how badly he wants you to be set free because of his scandalous forgiveness and love.